Hypothesis, Dumbledore, April 9th, 1992, 5.32pm. As Professor Quirrell slowly raised up his tea, the teacup jerked in mid-air, sending the dark translucent liquid just barely slopping over the side so that only three single drops crawled down the side of the teacup. Harry would have missed it, if he hadn't happened to be watching closely, for Professor Quirrell's hand was perfectly steady on the cup before and after. If that small jerky motion advanced to a constant tremor, it would be the end of any non-wandless magic for the defence professor. Wandwork had no room for trembling fingers. How much that would actually handicap Professor Quirrell, if at all, Harry couldn't guess. The defence professor was certainly capable of wandless magic, yet still tended to use a wand for larger things. But for him that might only be a convenience. Insanity, said Professor Quirrell as he carefully sipped from his tea. He was looking at the teacup, not at Harry, which was unusual for him. Can be a signature all of its own. The defense professor's small office was silent, the sound-warded room quiet in a way the headmaster's office never could be. Sometimes the two of them both happened to finish exhaling or inhaling at the same time, and then there was an auditory emptiness that was almost a sound in itself. I'll agree with that in one sense, Harry said. If someone tells me that everyone is staring at them and that their underwear is being dusted with thought-controlling powder, I know they're psychotic, because that's the standard signature of psychosis. But if you tell me that anything confusing points to Albus Dumbledore as a suspect, that seems uh, overreaching. Just because I can't see a purpose doesn't mean there is no purpose. Purposeless, said Professor Quirrell. Oh, but the madness of Dumbledore is not that he is purposeless, but that he has too many purposes. The headmaster might have planned this to make Lucius Malfoy throw away his game for vengeance on you, or it might be a dozen other plots. Who knows what the headmaster thinks he has reason to do, when he has found reason to do so many strange things already. Harry politely declined tea, even knowing that Professor Quirrell would know what it meant. He considered bringing his own can of soda, but had decided against that as well, after realizing how easy it would be for the defense professor to teleport in a bit of potion even if the two of them couldn't touch each other with direct magic. I have seen a little now of Dumbledore, Harry said. Unless everything I've seen is a lie, I find it difficult to believe that he would plot to send any Hogwarts student to Azkaban. Ever. Ah, the defense professor said softly, the tiny reflection of the teacup gleaming in his pale eyes. But perhaps that is another signature, Mr. Potter. 
You have not yet comprehended the perspective of a man like Dumbledore. If he must, in some sufficiently noble cause, sacrifice a student, why, who would he choose but she who declared herself a heroine? That gave Harry some pause. It might just be hindsight bias, but that did seem to concentrate some of that hypothesis probability mass onto framing Hermione in particular. Similarly, Professor Quirrell had predicted in advance that Dumbledore might target Draco. But if it's you behind all of this, Professor, you might have shaped your plans to frame the Headmaster and taken care to cast suspicion on him in advance. The concept of evidence had something of a different meaning when you were dealing with someone who had declared themselves to play the game at one level higher than you. I see your point, Professor, Harry said evenly, giving no hints of his other thoughts. So, you think it's most probable that it was the headmaster who framed Hermione? Not necessarily, Mr. Potter. Professor Quirrell drained his teacup in one swallow and then set it down, the cup making a sharp rap as it descended. There is also Severus Snape, though what he might think to gain from this I could not guess. Thus, he is not my prime suspect either. Then who is? Harry said, somewhat puzzled. Professor Quirrell surely wasn't about to reply, you know who. The orders have a rule, said Professor Quirrell. Investigate the victim. Many would-be criminals imagine that if they are the apparent victims of a crime, they shall not be suspected. So many criminals imagine it, indeed, that every senior order has seen it a dozen times over. You're not seriously trying to convince me that Hermione... The defense professor was giving Harry one of those slit-eyed looks that meant he was being stupid. Draco? Draco had been interrogated under Veritaserum. But Lucius might have had enough control to subvert Aura's to... Oh. You think Lucius Malfoy set up his own son? Harry said. Why not? Professor Quirrell said softly. From Mr. Malfoy's recorded testimony, Mr. Potter... I gather that you enjoyed some success in changing Mr. Malfoy's political views. If Lucius Malfoy learned of that earlier, he might have decided that his former heir had become a liability. I don't buy it, Harry said flatly. You are being wantonly naive, Mr. Potter. The history books are full of family disputes turned murderous for inconveniences and threats far less than those which Mr. Malfoy posed to his father. I suppose next you will tell me that Lord Malfoy of the Death Eaters is far too gentle to wish his son such harm. A tinge of heavy sarcasm. 
Well, yes, frankly, Harry said. Love is real, Professor, a phenomenon with observable effects. Brains are real, emotions are real, and love is as much a part of the real world as apples and trees. If you made experimental predictions without taking parental love into account, you'd have a heck of a time explaining why my own parents didn't abandon me at an orphanage after the incident with the science project. The defence professor did not react to this at all. Harry continued. From what Draco says, Lucius prioritised him over important Wizengamot votes. That's significant evidence, since there's less expensive ways to fake love, if you just want to fake it. And it's not like the prior probability of a parent loving their child is low. I suppose it's possible that Lucius was just taking on the role of a loving father, and that he renounced that role after he learned Draco was consorting with Muggleborns. But as the saying goes, Professor, one must distinguish possibility from probability. All the better the crime, the defence professor said, still in that soft tone, if no one would believe it of him. And how would Lucius even memory charm Hermione in the first place, without setting off the wards? He's not a professor. Oh, right, you think it's Professor Snape. Wrong, said the defence professor. Lucius Malfoy would trust no servant with that mission. But suppose some Hogwarts professor, intelligent enough to cast a well-formed memory charm, but of no great fighting ability, is visiting Hogsmeade. From a dark alley, the black-clad form of Malfoy steps forth. He would go in person for this and speaks to her a single word. Imperio? Legilimens, rather, said Professor Quirrell. I do not know if the Hogwarts wards would trigger for a returning professor under the Imperius curse. And if I do not know, Malfoy probably does not know either. But Malfoy is a perfect Oclumens at least. He might be able to use legilimency. And for the target, perhaps Aurora Sinestra. None would question the astronomy professor moving about at night. Or even more obviously, Professor Sprout, said Harry, since she's the last person anyone would suspect. The defence professor hesitated minutely. Perhaps. Actually, Harry said then, putting a thoughtful frown on his face, I don't suppose you know offhand if any of the current professors at Hogwarts were around back when Mr. Hagrid got framed in 1943? Dumbledore taught transfiguration. Kettleburn taught magical creatures, and Vector taught arithmancy, Professor Quirrell said at once. And I believe that Bathsheba babbling, now of ancient runes, was then a Ravenclaw prefect. But 
Mr. Potter, there is no reason to suspect that anyone besides you know who was involved in that affair. Harry shrugged artfully. Seemed worth asking the question, just to check. Anyway, uh, Professor, I agree it's possible that some outsider legitimized a member of the Hogwarts staff and then obliviated them afterward. There's no way anyone would forget that part. But I don't think Lucius Malfoy is a probable candidate for the mastermind. It's possible, but not probable, that all of Lucius's apparent love for Draco was just a sense of duty, and that it all went up in a puff of smoke. It's possible, though not probable, that everything Lucius did in front of the Wizengamot was just an act. People's outsides do not always resemble their insides, like you said, but there's one piece of evidence that doesn't fit at all. And that would be, said the defense professor, his eyes half-lidded. Lucius tried to reject a hundred thousand galleons for Hermione's life. I saw how surprised the Wizengamot was when Lucius said he was refusing it, despite the rules of honor. The Wizengamot didn't expect that of him. Why wouldn't he just take the money while acting all indignant and pretending to grit his teeth? He wouldn't actually care that much about throwing Hermione into Azkaban. There was a pause. Perhaps the role he was playing ran away with him, said Professor Quirrell. It does happen, Mr. Potter, in the heat of the moment. Perhaps, Harry said, but it's still one more improbability to be postulated. And by the time you've had to add up that many excuses in a theory, it can't be at the top of the list anymore. Anything else in particular you think I ought to think about within the range of all other possibilities? There was a long silence. The defense professor's eyes dropped down to look at the empty teacup before them, seeming unusually distant. I suppose I can think of one final suspect, the defense professor said at last. Harry nodded. The defense professor didn't seem to notice, but only spoke on. Has the headmaster told you anything, even a hint, about Professor Trelawney's prophecy? Huh? Harry said automatically, converting his own sudden shock into the best disassembling he could manage. It probably was at the wrong level to fool Professor Quirrell, but Harry certainly couldn't take time to think before replying. Oh, wait, but how on earth would Professor Quirrell know about that? Professor Trelawney made a prophecy. You were there to hear its beginning, Professor Quirrell said, frowning. You called out to the entire school that the prophecy could not be about you. Since you were not coming here, you were already here. He is coming, the one who will tear apart the very... 
And that was as far as Professor Trelawney had gotten before Dumbledore had grabbed her and vanished. Oh, that prophecy, Harry said. Uh, sorry, it went clear out of my mind. Harry thought he'd put too much force into the end statement and was 80% expecting Professor Quirrell to say, Aha! Now, Mr. Potter, what is this mysterious other prophecy you went to such lengths to deny? That is foolish, the defense professor said sharply. If indeed you are telling me the truth, prophecies are not trivial things. I have racked my brain much over the little that I heard, but such a small fragment is simply too little. You think the one who's coming is the one who might have framed Hermione? said Harry, as his mind allocated yet another hypothesis, uncertain predicate referent, he who is coming. With no offence meant to Miss Granger, the defence professor said with another frown, her life or death does not seem that important. But someone was to come. One who, in your interpretation, was not already there. And someone so significant and unknown as a player, who knows what else they may have done. Harry nodded and mentally sighed because he was going to have to redo his Lord Voldemort odds calculation with yet another piece of evidence in the mix. Professor Quirrell spoke with eyes half-lidded, looking out like through slits. More than the question of whom the prophecy spoke, who was meant to hear it? It is said that fates are spoken to those with the power to cause them or avert them. Dumbledore, myself, you, as a distant fourth, Severus Snape. But of those four, Dumbledore and Snape would often be in Trelawney's presence. You and I are the ones who would not have spent much time around her before that Sunday. I think it quite likely that the prophecy was meant for one of us, before Dumbledore took the prophetess away. Did the headmaster say nothing more to you? Professor Quirrell's voice was demanding now. I thought I heard too much force in that denial, Mr. Potter. Honestly, no, Harry said. It had, honestly, slipped clear out of my mind. Then I am rather put out with him, Professor Quirrell said softly. In fact, I think that I am angry. Harry said nothing. He didn't even sweat. It might have been a poor reason for confidence, but on this particular score, Harry did happen to be innocent. Professor Quirrell nodded once, uh, sharply, as though in acknowledgement. If there is nothing more to say between us, Mr. Potter, you may go. I can think of one other suspect, 
Harry said. Someone you didn't put on your list at all. Uh, would you analyze him to me, Professor? There was another of those moments of silence that was almost a sound in itself. As for that suspect, the defense professor said softly, I think you shall prosecute him on your own, Mr. Potter, without help from me. I have heard such requests before, and experience leads me to refuse. Either I will do too good a job of prosecuting myself and convince you that I am guilty, or else you will decide that my prosecution was too half-hearted and that I am guilty. I will remark only this in my defense, that I would have needed a very good reason indeed to jeopardize your fragile alliance with the heir to House Malfoy. Hypothesis, the defense professor, April 8th, 1992, 8.37 p.m. So I fear I must take my leave, Dumbledore was saying gravely. I promised Quirinus, that is to say, I promised the defense professor that I would not make any attempt to uncover his true identity in my own person or any other. And why'd you make a foolish promise like that, then? snapped Mad-Eye Moody. It was an unalterable condition of his employment, or so he said. Dumbledore glanced at Professor McGonagall, a wry smile briefly flitting over his face. And Minerva made it clear to me that Hogwarts required a competent defense professor this year, even if I had to haul Grindelwald out of Nurmengard and prevail on old affections to persuade him to take the position. I did not quite phrase it in that fashion. Your expression said it for you, my dear. And so soon, the four of them, Harry, Professor McGonagall, the Potions Master, and Alistair Moody, a.k.a. Mad-Eye, were ensconced all by themselves in the Headmaster's office. It was strange how the Headmaster's office seemed unbalanced without the Headmaster in it. If you didn't have the ancient, wizened master to make it all seem solemn, you were just four people trying to have a serious meeting while surrounded by bizarre, noisy gidgets. Clearly visible from where Harry had perched himself on his chair arm was a truncated, conical object, like a cone with its top snipped off, slowly spinning around a pulsating central light which it shaded but didn't obscure, and each time the inner light pulsated, the assembly made a vroop, vroop, vroop sound that sounded oddly distant, muffled, like it was coming from behind four solid walls, even though the spinning conical section thingy was only a meter or two away. Vroop, vroop, and then there were the various 
Still breathing bodies of Harry Potter he'd stashed in one quiet corner, cleaning up a mess that was his own in more ways than one. Only one body wasn't inside a copy of the invisibility cloak, but then it merely took a small effort of concentration for Harry to perceive his other selves beneath the cloak of which he was the master, an effort which Harry had carefully not put forth earlier, to avoid getting advanced temporal information he wanted to determine by his own decision. The sad thing was that by this point, having his own body visibly lying in a corner didn't seem all that crazy. It was just... Hogwarts. All right then, Moody said, looking rather sour about it. From within his leather armor, the scarred man took out a black folder. This is a copy of what Amelia's people put together. She almost certainly knows we've got it, but it's all off the books. That clear? Anyway... And Moody told them who the Department of Magical Law Enforcement thought Quirinus Quirrell really was. A seemingly ordinary Hogwarts student, though talented enough that he had been only narrowly beaten out for the head boy position, who'd gone vacating in Albania after his graduation, disappeared, returned after twenty-five years, and then been caught up in the Wizarding War. It was murdering the House of Monroe that made Voldy's name, Moody said. Until then, he was just another dark wizard with delusions of grandeur and Bellatrix Black. But after that... Moody snorted. <laughs> Every fool in the country flocked to serve him. You would have hoped the Wizengamot would turn serious once they realized Voldy was willing to kill their own sacred selves. And that's just what the bastards did. Hope that some other bastard would turn serious. None of the cowards wanted to step in front. It was Munro, Crouch, Bones, and Longbottom. That was nearly everyone in the ministry who'd dare say a word that might give Voldy offence. That was how your house came to be ennobled, Mr. Potter, injected the solemn voice of Professor McGonagall. There is an ancient lord that, if anyone ends a most ancient house, whoever avenges that blood will be made noble. To be sure, the House of Potter was already older than some lines call ancient, but yours was titled a noble House of Britain after the end of the war, in recognition that you had avenged the most ancient House of Monroe. Flush of gratitude and all that, Mad-Eye Moody said sourly. It didn't last, but at least James and Lily got a fancy title, and a useless medal to take to their graves. But that's leaving out eight years of complete horror after Monroe disappeared, and Regulus Black. He was Monroe's private source in the Death Eaters, we're pretty sure, was executed by Voldy. Like a dam breaking and gore flooded out, 
drowning the whole country. Albus bloody Dumbledore himself had to step into Monroe's shoes, and that was barely enough for us to survive. Harry listened with an odd sense of unreality. Some of it felt right, matched up with observation, especially with the speech Professor Quirrell had made before Christmas. And yet, this was Professor Quirrell they were talking about. So, that's who the department thinks your defence professor is, Mad-Eye Moody finished up his account. Now, what do you think, son? Well, Harry said slowly, it's also possible to have a mask behind the mask. The obvious next thought is that this David Munro person died in the war after all, and this is just someone else pretending to be David Munro, pretending to be Quirinus Quirrell. That's obvious, said Professor McGonagall. Dear Merlin. Really, boy, said Mad-Eye Moody, his blue eye spinning rapidly. I'd say that's a little paranoid. You don't know Professor Quirrell, Harry did not say. It's an easy theory to test, Harry said out loud. Just check whether the defence professor remembers something about the war that the real David Munro would have known. Though I suppose if he's playing the part of David Munro pretending to be someone else, he has a good excuse to pretend he's pretending he doesn't know what you're talking about. A little paranoid, said the scarred man, his voice rising. Not paranoid enough. Constant vigilance. Think about it, lad. What if the real David Monroe never came back from Albania? There was a pause. I see, Harry said. Of course you do, Professor McGonagall said. Don't mind me, please. I'll just sit here quietly going mad. In this line of work, if you survive, you learn that there's three kinds of dark wizards, Moody said grimly. His wand wasn't pointed at anyone, it was angled slightly downward, but it was in his hand. It had never left his hand since the moment he'd entered the room. There's dark wizards that have one name. There's dark wizards that have two names. And there's dark wizards that change names like you and I change clothes. I saw Munro go through three Death Eaters like he was snapping twigs. There's not many wizards that good at age 45. Dumbledore, maybe, but not many others. Perhaps that is true said the potions master from where he was lurking. But what of it, Mad-Eye? Whatever his identity, Monroe was surely the Dark Lord's enemy. I've heard Death Eaters curse his name even after they thought him dead. 
they feared him well. So far as defence professors are concerned, Professor McGonagall said primly, he shall take it and be grateful. Moody swung around to glare at her. Just where the devil was Monroe all those years he was gone, eh? Maybe he thought he could make a name for himself in Britain by exposing Valdi, and vanished away when he found out he was wrong. Then why'd he come back now, huh? What's his new plan? He, uh... Harry ventured tentatively. He says he always wanted to be a great defence professor because all the best fighting wizards have taught at Hogwarts. And he kind of is being an incredibly good defence professor, actually. I mean, if he just wanted to keep up a disguise, he could get away with much sloppier work. Professor McGonagall was nodding firmly. Noyave, Moody said flatly. I suppose you all haven't wondered if your defence professor set up the whole house of Monroe to be wiped out. What? cried Professor McGonagall. Our ministry wizard hears about a missing kid from a most ancient house of Britain, Moody said. Steps into the shoes of David Monroe, but stays away from the real Monroe family. But eventually, the house is bound to notice something wrong. So this imposter somehow prods Valdi into wiping them all out. Maybe leaked a password they'd given him for their wards. And then he was a lord of the Wizengamot. There seemed to be a fight going on inside Harry's mind between Hufflepuff 1, who'd never trusted the defence professor in the first place, and Hufflepuff 2, who was far too loyal to Harry's friend, Professor Quirrell, to believe something like that just because Moody said so. It is kind of obvious, though, observed his Slytherin part. I mean, do you actually believe that... Under natural circumstances, anyone would end up as the last heir to a most ancient house, and Lord Voldemort killed his family, and he has to avenge his martial arts sensei? If anything, I'd say he went too far over the top in setting up his new identity as the ideal literary hero. That sort of thing doesn't happen in real life. This from an orphan who was raised unaware of his heritage, commented Harry's inner critic, with a prophecy about him. You know, I don't think we've ever read a story about two equally destined heroes competing to see who's cliché enough to take down the villain. Yes replied the central Harry over the distant vrooping noise in the background. It's a very sad life we lead, and you're not helping! There's only one thing to do at this point, said Ravenclaw, and we all know what it is, so why argue? But, Harry replied, 
How do we test experimentally whether or not Professor Quirrell is the original David Munro? I mean, what sort of observable behaves differently depending on whether he's the real David Munro or an imposter? What do you want me to do about it, Med A? Professor McGonagall was demanding. I can't. You can, the scarred man said, glaring at her fiercely. Just fire the bloody defence, Professor. You say that every year, said Professor McGonagall. Yes, and I'm always right. Constant vigilance or no, Alistair. The students must be taught. Moody snorted. I swear the curse gets worse every year, as you lot get more and more reluctant to let them go. Your precious Professor Quirrell would have to be Grindelwald in disguise to get himself sent off. Is he? Harry couldn't help asking. I mean, could he actually be? I check Grindy's cell every two months, Moody said. He was there in March. Could the person in the cell be a ringer? I administer a blood test for his identity, son. Where do you keep the blood you use as a reference? In a safe place. Something like a smile was stretching the scarred lips. Have you considered the aura office after you graduate? Alistair, Professor McGonagall said reluctantly. The defence professor does have a health condition. I suppose you'll call it suspicious in itself, but it is by no means certain that it will be any ill-doing on his part which prevents us from renewing his employment. Yes, his little nap times. Moody said darkly. Amelia thinks he stepped into the path of a high-level curse. Sounds to me more like a dark ritual gone wrong. You've no proof of that, Professor McGonagall said. That man might as well be wearing a sign saying, Dark Wizard, in glowing letters over his head. Ah, Harry said. It didn't seem like an especially good time to ask what Mr. Moody thought of the not-all-sacrificial-rituals-are-evil standpoint. Excuse me, but you said earlier that Professor Quirrell... I mean, the old David Monroe... I mean the Monroe from the 70s. Anyway, you said that person used the killing curse... What does that imply? Uh, Does somebody have to be a dark wizard to use it? Moody shook his head. I've used it myself. All it takes is power and a certain mood. The grimacing lips were showing teeth. The first time I cast it was against a wizard named Gerald Grice. And you can ask me what he did after you graduate Hogwarts. But why is it unforgivable, then? Harry said. 
I mean, a cutting axe can kill someone too, so why is it any better to use a reducto instead of a varlicata- Shut your mouth! Moody said sharply. Someone might take it the wrong way. You're saying that incantation. You look too young to cast it, but there's such a thing as polyjuice. And to answer your question, boy, there's two reasons why that spell is in the blackest book. The first is that the killing curse strikes directly at the soul, and he'll just keep on going until it hits one. Straight through shields, straight through walls. There's a reason why even Ara's fighting Death Eaters weren't allowed to use it before the Monroe Act. Ah, said Harry. That does seem like an excellent reason to ban- Oh, I'm not finished, son. The second reason is that the killing curse doesn't just take a powerful bit of magic. You've got to mean it. You've got to want someone dead. And not for the greater good, either. Killing Grice didn't bring back Blair Roche or Nathan Rayfuss or David Capito. It wasn't for justice, nor to stop him doing it again. I wanted him dead. You understand now, lad. You don't have to be a dark wizard to use that spell. But you can't be Albus Dumbledore, either. And if you're arrested for killing with it, there's no possible defense. I see, murmured the boy who lived. You can't want the person dead as an instrumental value on the way to some positive future consequence. You can't cast it if you believe it's a necessary evil. You have to actually want them dead for the sake of being dead as a terminal value in your utility function. A magically embodied preference for death over life, striking with the plane of pure life force, uh, that does sound like a difficult spell to block. Not difficult, Moody snapped. Impossible. Harry nodded gravely. But David Monroe, or whoever, used the killing curse against a couple of Death Eaters even before they wiped out his family. Does that mean he already had to hate them? Uh, like the martial arts story was probably true. Moody shook his head slightly. One of the dark truths of the killing curse, son, is that once you've cast it the first time, it doesn't take much hate to do it again. It damages the mind? Again, Moody shook his head. No, it's the killing that does that. Murder tears the soul, but that's just the same if it's a cutting hex. The killing curse doesn't crack your soul. It just takes a cracked soul to cast. If there was a sad expression on the scarred face, it could not be read. But that doesn't tell us much about Monroe, 
The ones like Dumbledore who'll never be able to cast the curse all their lives, because they never crack no matter what. They're the rare ones. Very rare. It only takes a little cracking. There was a strange, heavy feeling in Harry's chest. He wondered what exactly it had meant that Lily Potter had tried to cast the killing curse at Lord Voldemort with her last breath. But surely it was forgivable. It was right and proper for a mother to hate the dark wizard who was coming to kill her baby, mocking her for how she couldn't stop him. There was something wrong with you as a parent if you couldn't cast Averda Kedavra in that situation. And no other spell could have gone past the Dark Lord's shields. You'd have to at least try to hate the Dark Lord enough to want him dead for the sake of dead, if that was the only way to save your baby. It only takes a little cracking. Enough, said Professor McGonagall. What would you have us do? Moody's smile twisted. Get rid of the defense, Professor, and see if all your troubles mysteriously clean up. Bet you a galleon they do. Professor McGonagall looked like she was in pain. Alistair, but will you teach the classes if... Ha! said Moody. If I ever say yes to that question, check me for polyjuice, because it's not me. I'll test it experimentally, Harry said, and then, as everyone looked at him, I'll ask Professor Quirrell a question that the real David Munro would know, like who else was in the Slytherin class of 1945, or something like that, hopefully without making it obvious. It won't be definitive proof. He could have studied the role, but it would be evidence. Still, Mr. Moody, even if Professor Quirrell isn't the original Monroe, I'm not sure that getting rid of him is a free action. He saved my life twice. What? demanded Moody. When? How? Once, when he knocked down a bunch of witches who were summoning me toward the ground. Once, when he figured out that the Dementor was draining me through my wand. And if Professor Quirrell wasn't the one who set up Draco Malfoy in the first place, then he saved Draco Malfoy's life. And things would be a lot worse if he hadn't. If the Defense Professor isn't behind it all, he's not someone we can afford to just get rid of. Professor McGonagall nodded firmly.